Uninvisible is a support podcast that provides information, ideas, suggestions, and experiences that deal squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice of any kind. We do provide support, concepts, ideas, discussions, and information that you can use to make sure that you are being heard and that your concerns are being addressed. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing, but we will be here for you along your journey. We welcome all comments about our episodes and, of course, the correction of any errors. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our Terms of Service and Privacy Policy, which are available on our website located at www.uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Most of all, we welcome your stories and experiences to share with our community because without you, this community and the benefit it offers all of us would not exist. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Of course, in the event that you are having a medical emergency of any kind, consult your physician or emergency services. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman. And I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. All right, guys, thank you so much for joining us. I'm here today with the lovely Aditi Juneja, who is a lawyer who lives with epilepsy. So Aditi, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's great to meet you finally. So why don't we start from the very beginning? Tell us when and how you first realized that you had this condition. So I didn't actually realize it. My mom realized that something was going on when I was three years old. Actually, my grandmother realized and told my mom to get me checked out. Wow. Yeah. And what was happening was she would notice me kind of like staring into space with my eyes rolled back. And what was happening was I was having petty mal seizures or opsom seizures where you're briefly going in and out of consciousness for just a couple seconds at a time. A lot of times uh, that type of epilepsy can be misdiagnosed as ADD or ADHD or, you know, just a behavioral issue. Mm. And what's actually happening is you're going in and out of consciousness. And then for me, very strangely, this went away until I was about 10. So yeah, it just, I I didn't start on medication immediately. My, the pediatric neurologist I saw said my EEG wasn't that abnormal. Give it a little bit of time, see how I'm doing. And then it went away as far as we could tell until I was about 10. Mm. Um, And then it came back and I was very mad at my mom for not telling me that this has happened when I was three. And she was like, why would I tell you this? <laughs> Especially if it's something that went away and you didn't have to yeah, do it. Right. She's yeah. like, why would I tell you? Like, yeah. like, you just told me to pay attention. For it. Um, it was, you know, just very, uh, you know, me wanting to feel in control. Well, but it is your body. So actually, yeah, right. at just a young age, you were already for advocating for yourself. That's right. <laughs> so I wonder you ended up in the legal profession. Indeed. I was like, what the hell? <laughs> And, um, and so I was having Penny Muller apps on seizures for about a year. And then shortly before my 11th birthday was fall of 2001, I had my first grand mal seizure. Uh, and that is the type of seizure that people kind of imagine from the movies where someone is unconscious for a couple minutes at a time, falls to the ground, is convulsing. And I was, uh, it was, it was a very eventful fall of 2001. 9-11 had just happened. I had like 
gotten my period earlier that year, right? It was just a lot of stuff all at once. I won my award. um, And then I had the seizure. And again, my pediatric neurologist, she was very uh, kind of cautious about over-medicating kids and said, sometimes these things happen as a one-off. Let's see if it happens again uh, before we try to fiddle with medicine and dosaging. And then that uh, early, the following year in 2002, so it was January, February, something like that, I had my second seizure. And so that was when I started uh, on more serious medications to try to deal with that. And I was playing with different medications, working on that for about two years through middle school. Mm -hmm. And then in high school, I went four years being seizure-free And then I went to college and was no longer med compliant and was drinking and doing all kinds of things that trigger seizures, not sleeping, all Mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. And uh, my seizures were once again, not controlled. And it kind of stayed in some version of challenge with controlling, maybe partly due to my, to the fact I had epilepsy, but also just largely due to lifestyle and not being med compliant for the next several years. And then as I was starting law school, I was feeling like, you know, I got to get this shit together because I'm not going to be able to, to deal with this in law school. And I was also very excited about law school. So I was just invested in my life in a kind of different way. And also realizing that, you know, if I don't figure out what works for me now, when am I going to have a couple months to play around with medication again, right? Like summers between law school, you're doing internships and I'll study for the bar. Then I'll start working. When am I really going to have that time? Absolutely. So the summer before law school, I spent a few weeks in the hospital changing medications, uh, partly because I was trying to really make sure it was in control, but also partly because, um, the medications I was on, I couldn't get pregnant on. And while I had no immediate plans to get pregnant, I knew that once I kind of started on this trajectory, I was going to have a hard time stepping off to figure that out. So I switched medications. I started law school. And my first year of law school, I did have uh, two grand mal seizures. And uh, by the stress or the new medication? I think it was neither. I think that it was just not fully in control at that point. Um, I mean, probably partly like the first one, it was the first one. It was like, it was very hot. I had like come in running from somewhere. So it was like, you know, there were triggers there. And then the second one, it was during an exam. So there were triggers, but I think it was, but usually for me, at least medication serves kind of as like a protection to those triggers so that even, you know, and so yeah. I just, I, I didn't kind of have the dosing right or the, the, the combination right. And so that summer, the Dean of the law school who I had had for constitutional law said, if you ever want a second opinion, I can introduce you to someone at NYU's uh, Comprehensive Epilepsy Center. And my doctor, my neurologist, my adult neurologist, who I'd been seeing at that point must have been uh, over a decade. And she said, I think you should get a second opinion, hmm. um, which I thought was kind of uh, very like humble and kind of her. Extremely. I'm like, wow. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. So I um, went to see this doctor and I, I was trying to schedule an appointment that July. I couldn't get in. And I, then I asked the Dean of the law school to help me go in to see him. And mm-hmm. I got, ended up getting that appointment, which just tells you kind of how broken our medical system is that like it, yeah. it was supposed to be till October. And I ended up getting it that July within a couple mm-hmm. of weeks and I was nervous. So my sister went with me and that was really helpful because she remembered pieces of my medical history. I didn't remember. She had information um, about kind of her own experiences that were helpful uh, and I added, uh, I switched 
I added a medication at that time. I don't remember, I've been on lots of different meds, so I don't remember exactly which one I came off and went on at that time. Um, but that combination has worked. And so I've been um, seizure free now for, it'll be four years this fall. Yep. Knocking wood on there for you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's great. So you haven't had all run this long. No, it's not, no, I'm wrong. It's not four years. I started when, when did I start law school in 2014? No, that's right. Four years this fall. Okay. I'm just, so, okay. So the last time you had a run this long was when you were in high school. Yeah. The last time I went this long was in high school. I just realized that in this conversation. Yeah. <laughs> so is it something where, cause like you mentioned that the medications you had to sort of think about the fact that like on this particular medication, you wouldn't be able to get pregnant on it. Like, are there considerations into the future when you're taking these kinds of very strong and serious medications for this condition where you have to either be thinking, okay, but what if in 10 years or your hormones might shift or something and that may change your needs? Is that something that you have to constantly be monitoring? It's not something I have to constantly be monitoring. And it was also the priorities change, right? So when I was 10, we knew that this medication was one I couldn't get pregnant on. Um, and my neurologist said at the time, and so actually I had tried a bunch of other medications before the one that I was on, Depakote, which is like most effective. She said, if you were a boy, I would have started you on it first. And she was like, she was like, I want to find a permanent solution for you that you can be on for the rest of your life if you need to be. And that's great. So So she was thinking ahead. She was thinking ahead, even if I wasn't. And at that point, and so that was why I think I had two years of, you know, of challenge of like, of having seizures because we were trying all these different things. Mm-hmm. And then I went on that medication. as like, it was the last resort. And then that did work for several years. And it was, I was taking, I remember this, I was taking the Lamictal for the grand mal seizures and then the Depakote for, for the petty mal seizures because I was having a hard time controlling them. Mm-hmm. And so through high school, it was fine. I wasn't really thinking long-term about anything. I didn't, I had a bit of a tremor here and there, but I didn't really feel like I was experiencing super long-term side effects. And then in law, as I was going into law school, I was coming off of the Depakote. We we're trying to figure out what to replace it with. And I actually replaced it with this uh, black box medication called Felbitol, which no one had even suggested to me. Like you can't find it anywhere. If you go and look for it, if you go mm. the pharmacy, it takes three weeks to order it because it's black box by the FDA. Wow. Meaning that like, um, because, uh, it could kill you apparently. Mm. And so the doctor told me this and she's like, yeah, so there are like all these dangers, but it's like also potentially effective. And I was like feeling really like, I don't know, like I want my life. I want to go to law school. How do I make this decision? And I really still trusted my pediatric neurologist just from like a life giving yeah. information perspective. And so I called her off. I said to my mom, I said, I wish I could talk to her. And she said, you should call her. And I said, I don't know if you'll remember me. Cause it had been, you know, over a decade at that point. And she said, she'll remember you call her. So I called her and I said, I know this is weird and you're not my doctor anymore, but like, can I talk to you about this? <laughs> and her, her nurse had me, had her call me back. She called me back within a day and I kind of laid it out. And she said, it was like much more mom advice than like doctory advice that she That's said. Great. Like, yeah, but she said like, I listened to this podcast on NPR this morning. That was about this man who was making kind of a decision about like, do you do something? high risk that will really improve your quality of life or do you kind of live with a lower quality of life? And she sent it to me and I said, well, I asked the doctor because, you know, me being me, I asked the doctor about what are the odds that like I die on this medication or I have these really serious side effects. And they were really small. It was like one in 10,000. I was like mad they didn't tell me that first where I was like, these are not high odds. And she said, yeah, but Aditi, like 
one in 10, like it's, you're not going to one in 10,000 die. Like you're either going to die or you're not right. Like you'll Mm -hmm. like, that's how it kind of, it works. And I was like, well, that's true. And she sent it to me and I was listened to it. And I was just kind of persuaded that like, if you're going to live a life, it should be worth living. And so I started, um, and it should be like the one you want. And so I started taking that medication and I've like had no side effects and I like looked into it. And a lot of the people who even had those issues had other pre-existing conditions that I didn't have. And so it was just like my chances were very low, but it was this kind of scary big decision in that. Yeah. Moment. Yeah. And then when I wasn't controlled for, you know, that first year of law school, I went to see my doctor. He actually took me off one medic off the, the Lamictal and put me on another one Kepra. And, um, it was kind of funny because someone in my family, I said like, Oh yeah, someone in my family is on this. Like now we'll be like the same. (laughs) And I thought it was like very funny and like clever that I had like made this joke. And then my sister's like, you know, there's like biology and genetics, right? Like that. (laughs) (laughs) So that could be the connection there. (laughs) I was like, you just like ruined my whole like, Oh yeah. (laughs) Like, Oh, we were going to be medication buddies. (laughs) Yeah. That's right. And she was like, she was like, she was like, that's, not anything. um, But it was a good, like, so, you know, like through that journey, it was, you know, there were these choices and things to moderate and stuff. But for me, it was just always like a quality of life thing. And, you know, Mm -hmm. people die having seizures that go on for a very long time. Um, I have personally not been injured having a seizure, but I know people who've broken arms, broken legs, fallen downstairs, all kinds of stuff. And so I didn't, like I, I of course try to like balance the, my quality of life and in, in other aspects, but like the fact that I might like gain a little weight or like hate taking meds, it just wasn't. And I've never, I've never experienced. I guess I should say it like this: I've never experienced a side effect that would make it worth me not taking my medication. Right. And is it is it something where like if you were going to have the negative side effect, it would happen more immediately, like you would have known early on? Yeah, that's generally what they say that I would have known, you know, like definitely within the first year, probably within the first couple months. And a lot of those meds, that's why you kind of go on them gradually. That's why it takes Mm -hmm. so long to fiddle with them because you're trying to watch for um, potential side effects. And also the thing is I've always had doctors who really tried to keep me on the lowest doses of medications possible. So they were not, yeah, they weren't always therapeutic doses even, like there were sub-therapeutic doses just because we know so little about the brain that it's not like, oh, this isn't doing anything for you. It was like, let's do it gradually and see if it helps. Mm. And so I've always also just been on very low doses of my medications. Okay. So you've been able to like continue on those low doses too, which is great. Yeah. The one like thing that was kind of interesting was before law school, when, when they were introducing me to this medication, I remember the doctor saying like, you're going to law school. You can't be, you need your brain to work. Like you can't be on like doubt, like, like <laughs> most epilepsy medications because epilepsy is a firestorm in your brain of like synapses. Mm-hmm. They're downers. And she's like, there's this one that's like actually kind of an upper mm-hmm. and you be on that. That's the one that I'm on. And, and she was like, you should be on that because you need your brain to function. You can't be yeah. slow. Yeah. And, and when I switched, like I, my brain felt clear for the first time, like in years, it used to be that I would like have a seizure and that would feel very clarifying to me. Like I've like cleared some discharge or something in my brain. And after I switched to that, I like, I could see and feel a difference in like my wow. piece of thinking. So you knew it was the right decision anyway. Yeah. It just felt different. And it's, but what's, what's weird is like, we had asked my, my pediatric neurologist the whole way through, like, 
do we think this is affecting my cognitive ability, like my ability to think? And she said no, and there was no real proof of it, but my dad always said that he could kind of tell that I was thinking a little bit slower than I used to. Like it would just take me a little longer to grasp a concept or think through something. But the reality was, I don't say this to be braggy, it's like just true, is that like, but that was still a pretty normal pace. It wasn't like I was Mm. slowed down. And now I think, I think faster than like many people around me, but Mm. that feels like my more normal. Yeah. It's your pace. That's your normal pace. Yeah. And so that it's just, there's something weird about it, which is like, it wasn't, it wasn't observable in the sense that it wasn't like, Oh, like, cause when, when a doctor is looking at you, they're looking at you relative to your, your peer group. They're not look, and when my dad is looking at me, he's looking at me relative to me before I had started. Right. Yeah. So, so he was looking at you, going like, "Well, she, she's usually like faster than the average, and now she's like normal speed." So yeah, yeah, right. totally. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you mentioned earlier about like your sister bringing up genetics and biology, and did did your doctors ever take a root cause approach? Like, did they ever look into your neurology and go like, "Gee, where did this epilepsy develop from?" Um, and you know, what has that sort of looked like in terms of not only your family history, but also like if you plan to have a family of your own. So I have idiopathic generalized epilepsy, which means they don't know why I have it. And it happens in my whole brain, Mm -hmm. which means that it's not like for people who have temporal epilepsy, which is in one part of their brain that you could kind of like people do surgeries. You could go in and like kind of figure that out. For me, it happens everywhere. So there's no like physical in terms of like this one area of the brain approach. And it's idiopathic because we look at my genetic history. I have an aunt who has had one seizure once, um, but like lots of people have one seizure once. There was no like past previous family history. Um, And so there was no real, and I didn't have like, you know, as a young child, I didn't have like a series of high fevers. I never like had hit my head. Like there was nothing that really indicated some sort of root cause. Mm. Wow. That's really interesting. Do you know if there are any statistics about like, you know, how many people tend to have it genetically and Uh, how many people are idiopathic? It's a third, it's almost a third of people are idiopathic. Like like, most people, like a lot of people who have epilepsy don't know why they have it. That's really interesting. So is that, you also mentioned that like, you know, your dad and your mom and your sister have all been involved in your health journey. Um, Did you ever discover that you needed a personal advocate at any point in this journey to like finding the right medication? And I mean, obviously you started this journey as a kid too. So I'm sure your parents were very involved, but you know, like, did you find that like, and even now when you go for checkups, like you sometimes need someone to come with you or is it really like you're your own advocate now? I think I've actually always been my own advocate and I think it was really encouraged by my parents that after I, I had my first seizure at school, like a lot of people do. And afterwards my classmates were really nervous and like kind of weird because they didn't understand what had happened. And so I like went around, I, I asked, I went around with the school nurse. She came with me by my request to explain it to all the kids in my unit. And like, that's really cool. Yeah. So I had, and then every year after that, I had teachers, right? And I was the one who would always explain to them, like, what this thing was. My dad helped me make these, like, index cards. This was before the digital age, which on one side was, like, emergency contacts. And on the other side was, like, if you have a seizure, do this, don't do mm-hmm. this. So it was, like, really easy to, like, give to a teacher or if I was going on a school trip to a chaperone or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If someone is listening to the podcast now, are there, like, do's and don'ts that are important to share? 
Yeah. I mean, the dues are just to make sure that the person is, doesn't physically hurt themselves. So you protect the person's head, you lay them on their side so that they um, don't swallow. They're not like choking on their own saliva. Um, you try to time it for me. If it's longer than two minutes, you call uh, 911 and it just passes and then you help the person rest. So beyond mm-hmm. that, it's not much more than that. Like it's move sharp, you know, if I felt, if I had a seizure right now, I'm like sitting next to a, a big table. Like ideally someone would move it away. Right. So I didn't hit mm. myself on it, but beyond that, there's not nothing to do. And then the don'ts are really from bad information and rumors. Like you can't choke on your own tongue. So you don't, you're not supposed to put anything in the person's mouth. Um, you shouldn't try to restrain the person who's having a seizure. Cause you can, you're, you're um, convulsing with such force. You could actually hurt someone by trying to restrain them or yeah. stop their shaking. And Beyond that, there's not nothing else. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, it sounds like your doctors have been with you every step of the way. You've never had any problems, but have you ever been in positions where you've had to justify to people that you had this illness, um, you know, either for your safety or for their own, um, when maybe they didn't believe you at first? I don't think I've been in situations where someone didn't believe me, but I don't, but I think I've been in situations where people, um, didn't really like get it. Uh, so I don't think anyone was like, no, you don't have epilepsy. I think it was more like, um, sometimes I have a hard time in the morning because I have petty malls and I need to start my work day a little bit later mm-hmm. and kind of at work. It's like, well, we know we have to make accommodations, get a doctor's note, fill out this form, but kind of feeling like this is not my current job. Uh, but like in, but like in the past and previous jobs or internships, feeling like I was being judged a little bit for that or like having to take a sick day and feeling like I was being judged for that. And mm-hmm. so it wasn't, it wasn't so much a disbelief, um, but more. It was a lack of understanding and compassion. Yeah. Was yeah. that something where you had informed your employers in particular that you had epilepsy as well? So it, it changed. What I realized oh, through this journey was that early on, I would just like not tell people until I had to tell people. Mm-hmm. And then I realized that when you tell people after you have to tell them, there's some skepticism that comes with it of like, why mm-hmm. am I only hearing about this now? And I learned that through school. Like in college, it would happen that I would like have a seizure and I'd tell a professor like, I'm out. I have to be out. I had a seizure. And they would be like, what the fuck? I didn't know you had epilepsy. Like they never said that, but I was my feeling that they were right. skeptical of it because they hadn't been informed ahead of time. Mm-hmm. So when I started law school, I would tell professors at the beginning of a semester and I would tell employers or internship, you know, people where I was doing an internship at the beginning to kind of just, But after you were hired, not like in the Yeah, after, no, after I was hired, but once I started mm-hmm. to just avoid the potential that someone like, by the way, this is a thing, if it comes up, I want you to know this. Yeah. Just trying to avoid the situation where it did come up and then I, people were skeptical of that it was real. Absolutely, yeah. This episode is sponsored by Ember Labs, creators of the Ember Wave, the intelligent bracelet that helps control how you experience temperature. I'm heat sensitive and this device has been a lifesaver. Using patented technology, it cools or warms the temperature-sensitive skin on your wrist, creating a natural response in your body and mind that helps you thermally adjust in minutes. It was selected by Time magazine as one of 2018's best inventions. For those of you with mounting medical costs to consider, the team at Ember offer a payment plan in partnership with a firm. And because you listen to an invisible pod, they are offering you $30 off. Go to emberlabs.com, that's E-M-B-R labs.com, 
Enter code INVISIBLE at checkout and experience personal thermal wellness on a whole new level with me. So how are you balancing the demands of work and life when you're being aware of a seizure coming on, if you're able to notice it coming on? Or, I mean, I know you've been seizure-free for four years now, but, you know, what is it like balancing stress and, you know, other people's needs in your work life um, and a work life that is obviously very meaningful to you because there's a lot of advocacy work involved um, with the demands that your body puts on you? Yeah. Um, so I, I can't tell if I'm going to have a seizure. I have an aura. So I, I can, mm. I think that's the big reason why I haven't hurt myself having a seizure is because I've been able to put myself in a safe situation. Um, the balance of it though, for me, so, so even though I've not had a seizure, I like manage my epilepsy every day, meaning that like I take my medications every day. I have to make sure I sleep a certain number of hours every day. I have to make sure I'm not drinking. I have to make sure like, you know, if I'm, if I'm on my period that I'm making sure I'm getting extra rest, like all, like there's lots of management of my epilepsy. Um, and I think that at this stage in my life, it has gotten easier because my life is more routinized. Um, whereas I think when I was going through transitions every couple of years, like finishing college. Now I'm working. Now I'm going back to school. Now I'm, I'm in school, but now I'm doing an internship. Now I'm changing my classes. Like it was much more hard to get into a rhythm because it was shifting constantly. Uh, but I started paying attention. So by my second year of law school, uh, I started paying attention that when I would sign up for classes, like, am I going to have a bunch of exams? I would try to take classes where I'd have a mix of exams and papers and clinics so that I wouldn't end up having this one or two weeks where I was like losing my mind studying because I have Mm. to sleep. Yeah. Or or in my current job, um, I've been doing like a fair amount of traveling and I just like figured out that for me to sleep and feel okay, like I'll get there a night early or I'll leave a day later and just not, you know, be doing these kind of quick turnarounds or, uh, flights or leaving at like crazy hours. Uh, you know, like I'm not going to wake up at 5am for a flight. I'm not going to avoid taking a red eye back. Mm -hmm. Um, and so for me, it's been a lot of it. It's just about boundaries. Same thing when I was, when I was younger, not drinking felt like a really big deal. Now I have a lot of friends who don't drink. It doesn't feel that weird. Yeah. It gets so different when you're like an adult, doesn't it? (laughs) College being like, I can't drink or I can't drink to excess feels like like you're so isolated. Yeah. Well, and it's also like you're losing out in the experience of like fucking up really so that yeah. you don't have to do it later. <laughs> yeah. But like when you're, you know, I'm 28, I'll be 29. Like when we drink, it's like go out for a drink or two. Someone will come over and have a glass of wine. And if they're pouring themselves three glasses of wine and I'm nursing the one, it doesn't make a difference. That's not yeah. the point of the interaction. Mm. Um, and, you know, now, like whether it's at work or other places, like now I know like a fair number of recovering alcoholics. So, like the fact that I'm not drinking, you know, in a work it's good setting, for them. <laughs> yeah, like, people don't know. Like, are you not drinking? Cause, like, because you're pregnant? Are you not drinking because yeah. you don't like to drink? Are you not drinking for religion? Are you not drinking for like? It's just I'm. I think I'm just in a much more like diverse atmosphere. Yeah, where people where, where any kind of choice you make or don't make seems less conspicuous because Mm. people are living in such different ways. Well, and, you know, having said that, there are probably way more reasons that people are not drinking than that they are, (laughs) you know? So as you say, like, yeah, there are a lot of possibilities out there. Um, Has your experience turned into advocacy on a larger scale too? Like, I know that you work in legal advocacy. So in terms of the health side of advocacy, what does that look like for you, given your experiences? 
Yeah. So I, my, my day job is not centered around this type of advocacy. Obviously I do advocacy in my work, but not this particular subset of things. Hmm. But, um, there are a few things that I do. One is, uh, is actually around the ACA repeal was when I started like writing and talking about um, healthcare, healthcare reform, um, my experiences with epilepsy after Jacqueline Kale died in CPB custody after having a seizure. I wrote an op-ed about that and like, I'm an immigrant, I'm brown and I have epilepsy, but when I have seizures, this country took care of me and they did not do that for her. And so for me, um, my entry into advocacy around disability was through uh, writing. Mm-hmm. And then my third year of law school or my second year of law school, I had a mentee who had a disability and she was navigating law school. And I was also navigating law school with a disability with very little institutional support. And like, there wasn't a ton of thoughtfulness around like community and avenues mm-hmm. of advocacy. And so we created uh, the Disability Allied Law Students Association at NYU, and that became a community space, an educational space, a way for us to be considered one of the affinity groups. Mm-hmm. It gave us kind of a platform for advocacy with the administration. I feel like they were always receptive. It wasn't like we had some list of demands or something, but the avenues weren't clear until this kind of organization because yeah. everything it was always a one-off, and then mm-hmm. it became a collective, and that was kind of different as an experience. Um, so I think it started actually with that probably with the disability allied law students association and seeing another student with a disability made me realize why it was important to like say, I have a disability. I don't think I really identified that way. Um, why it was important for me to be vocal and visible. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we created this organization and that was my third year of law school. And that fall was when Donald Trump got elected. So then the following spring, um, as the ACA repeal fight was happening, I blasted out this like Twitter thread trying to explain how uh, the Trump proposal for healthcare would affect people like me Mm. and basically used my own story to say like, I would not have access to healthcare under the system. And here's using my personal narrative to explain the very complicated policy that was that proposal. And um, someone at NPR reached out to me and asked me to turn it into an op-ed and she helped me to do that. That's really cool. Yeah, and since then I have written uh, like pieces here and there on it. Um, that spring um, of 2017, I was asked uh, to speak at Personal Democracy Forum about my work on a organization I created called the Resistance Manual. So I was running this national organization after, like, in during my last semester of law school after <laughs> Trump had been elected. It was very absurd. Yeah. Uh, speak at this conference and they asked me what I wanted to talk about. And I said, the thing that I don't see people talking about is like disability in any kind of positive framework. Mm. And I wanted to talk about how my epilepsy had really shaped and informed my leadership style and my ability to manage a national organization at that scale very thoughtfully. Like I had so many volunteers with disabilities because I had shaped our work processes and our flows um, in such a way that they were flexible, inclusive for someone like me, because uh, it was my organization. And as a result, it was therefore inclusive to lots of other types of people as well mm-hmm. with other issues. And um, so I gave that talk there. And so kind of, you know, those were like the, the early set of things. And then recently over the past year, I started leading with uh, someone who was on your podcast in the past, Sydney, 
at the wing and mm-hmm. invisible illness support uh, circles. So yeah. been like this mix of stuff. Yeah. But it's nice because it sounds like it's a mix of like on the ground, like grassroots stuff and then larger organizations that you're attaching yourself to as well so that you're getting the word out in both ways, which are really important. Yeah. Um, do you feel that you have like, do you ever feel an extra pressure as well being a woman of color who's representing the disability space too, that like, especially what you said in relation to what happened, um, you know, around the ACA repeal talks and, you know, with what's been happening legally in this country and everything in terms of the way in which people with disabilities are perceived? Like, is there an extra mantle of responsibility there for you? And, or is it a different like experience that you can see very clearly? I think I had the two things separated in my head. Like I, because I came into my racial awareness and consciousness so much earlier, like the idea of my racial identity and my gender identity as a political identity was Mm -hmm. clear to me so much earlier in my life. And it wasn't really until law school that the fact that I had epilepsy became political to me that I, I didn't comprehend it that way. Mm. And it's really through the work of like intersectional activists online on social media, like Melissa Thompson, like Alice Wong, that I really started to understand there is an intersection between disability, race, and gender. Like I didn't Mm. see it as a political identity prior to that. And so for me, I think the extra burden that I feel around this is just that I have to be visible, Mm. that I didn't think I understood, I didn't understand that like disability in the media or on TV or the experts uh, who, who talk about it or write about it are often white, that they're often doctors or not people who actually have um, these, these challenges. And yep. what's like worse is like, it's like there's some dichotomy between those who are impacted and those who have um, disabilities. And it doesn't make any sense because like, you don't get like a white expert on race and then a black person who's directly impacted to talk mm-hmm. about race. You can get Sherilyn Eiffel, who is an excellent black lawyer to talk about the law and to talk about race. And during the ACA fight, I wrote an article kind of slamming the media for its coverage saying like you quote doctors or you quote people with dis- or you kind of show pictures of people with disabilities as props, but don't recognize their own advocacy. And this was around, um, when ADAPT staged the protest on the Hill, I was mm. like, they really, the coverage was like, you know, of um, Stephanie Woodward in handcuffs and on the pink wheelchair, right? And it was yeah. like, but it didn't have her name. It didn't mention that she's a lawyer. It didn't it's just a disabled person. Yeah, that she had organized that protest. And so they really removed all of her agency and power and really treated mm. her as a prop. And ADAPT is like very thoughtful about the ableism in the media and like you know, it, it, it navigates these things beautifully and well, but I was super outraged that I was like, these are not just like pictures. These are people who, who, who like, who have all this knowledge. And it's not just that, uh, people with disabilities have healthcare can talk about healthcare from their own lived experience. It's like you have people with disabilities who are lawyers who understand policy, who do this as their job. And mm-hmm. so it just feels super strange that you would pick a non-disabled person when you could have someone who just has both experiences. Yeah, absolutely. Particularly because that's when you're bridging the gap between the invisible and the visible as well. It's like, why not have all of those things be visible? Yeah. Um, I mean, you're talking about this advocacy work in, in terms of the press and where the press is letting us down. What about the healthcare system? In what in what ways is our healthcare system working for patients now? And in what ways does it need improvement, particularly with regard to chronic illness and disability? 
So I'm not a healthcare policy expert. I can speak really just from my own experience. Yeah. Um, I think for me, the biggest thing that I've realized over time with the healthcare system really lets us down is there's just a huge separation between mental health care and um, kind of a physical challenge you're dealing with. And I think for me, some of the most, uh, some of the reasons that my epilepsy were not under control, I was talking about medical, like being compliant and taking my medications and feeling very isolated and alone and different from my peers. And I never had a neurologist who was like, why aren't you taking your medicine? Mm. It was yeah. just like, take your medicine. And I was like, okay, I'll take it. But like, there was never this like question, which I didn't. But yeah. There was like a question of like, why are you not taking it? Let's sit here and like, you know. Let's unpack that. Let's unpack that, right? Let's yeah. have a conversation about like, and for me, the big game changer where I became really med compliant was I started using pill pack, which like prepackages your medicine for you and you can mm-hmm. throw it away. So I didn't, I don't have bottles rattling around in my purse all day. And it's yeah. like, and you don't have to sit down every Sunday and like put your medicine in all these different containers. And so it's just like less mental. You don't have to think about being on meds a lot less. Yeah. Every day, like in a, in a given moment. Mm. And I was like, that was a thing I could have figured out much sooner if someone had asked me why I don't take my medication. Yeah. Like, you know, where I'd be like, but also oh, PillPack is a recently, it's like a pretty relatively new company too. <laughs> right. But it, it's not even about the resource, right? It's just like, I didn't realize that what was going on with me was like, I didn't want to have to think about it. I could have found mm-hmm. some other solve for that. Yeah. If I, if I had like understood what was going on or that I felt weird having bottles rattling around in my purse. I could have figured out a fix for that if I like thought if I had been prompted to think about why mm. and had the why taken seriously, as opposed to being like, just do it. Yeah. Cause it's never like, that simple. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, so I think for me, that's where I think there's like the biggest gap is just treating mental health. Um, you know, our system also just in terms of like how it's paid for co-pays, all of that is, is just totally separate from quote unquote physical healthcare, but like mm. they're just so deeply related. Yeah. It, feels really like strange to me, particularly for someone managing a chronic illness, because you're, you're, it, it's not a one-time thing. It's like a constant journey. And it's like, I feel like I'm in a pretty good place with it and I manage it. And I give myself permission not to manage it in certain ways where I feel like that will be safe for me. But like the, there are ebbs and flows of that. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. So it's almost as if mental health needs to be part of any kind of comprehensive healthcare plan, but particularly if you're someone with a chronic or uh, chronic illness or disability, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, we've covered a lot. I wondered if there was anything you wanted to add before we get into our top three lists, because that's how I like to wrap up my interviews. But is there anything else you want to share about your experience and, and what you've learned as, as someone living in the disability space and advocating in that space too? I just think that like, I've been very privileged. And I think that I should just like name that, that, you know, I had parents who really advocated for me, didn't try to limit me in any way. I had teachers and schools that were very accommodating of me and my But that's because you made them be accommodating too. So let's, let's give you some credit there. (laughs) To some degree, but like, I, I didn't get a ton of pushback on it, you know, and I, and I think that like, I should just name that. I, I think about it a lot. Like no one ever tried to put me in a special ed class. Like what would that have, what, that, how my life would have been so different if that had happened. And that does happen to people with epilepsy. All the time, all yeah. the time. And so I, I think about that, you know, a lot mm-hmm. that I think I, I got lucky in a lot of different ways, um, just by circumstance of birth. Mm-hmm. 
And then I also um, think that, like, I say that just to say that, like, everyone's disability journey and journey with this stuff is different. Um, you know, people, uh, I mentioned, you know, someone in my own family uses, uh, like, takes a similar medication as me. And that person's, like, not comfortable being public talking about this type of stuff. And that's okay. You know, the person wouldn't say that they have a disability. That's okay. Like, I wouldn't want someone to listen to this and either think that, like, my experience is radically different than theirs day to day lived or that like they're doing something wrong because they don't approach it the yeah. way that I do. I just feel like it's different and we make uh, choices. If I had a different type of job um, or I, or, you know, I went to a less prestigious law school, frankly, like I would be feel much more nervous about disclosing this publicly. Like I'd be very worried about, and I think if I thought about it more, if I'd really thought like, oh God, like I might not be able to get a job ever for disclosing this. I was just so fucking pissed that I disclosed it. And then after that, it was public, you know? Yeah. It's really interesting. Yeah. Because you have just taken the leap every time. Like there's never been a hesitation about it. And as you say, I guess that does come from a, a place of privilege, but also I think it comes from like, you know, I say this a lot in interviews. It's always us type A people who end up with some kind of chronic illness or disability. We're the go-getters. And for whatever reason, you know, um, our bodies are telling us we need to slow our roll a little bit, you know, but um, it's it's really great that you're turning what could have been something awful, but has actually been a very positive experience for you. It sounds like into work that will help other people. And that's the important thing here, isn't it? It's that it's not just about a one person. It's about a whole group of people and you're participating with it that is, group. But I mean, but I think also like if it's, but there are times where it's just about me because yeah. it's like I have to live. <laughs> and, and also it can be, you know, that like yeah. we're able to recognize when we're allowed to be quote unquote selfish. I don't think it's, it's not the right word, you know, but you know, when we're allowed to sort of like take those moments for ourselves, because you need to get the right amount of sleep and you, you know, you need to do those things to take care of yourself in order to function. And also it's like, you're not always feeling like you're ready to be in community with people. Um, Not all communities are safe. Like not all communities feel good for people. Like Sydney and I have been really thoughtful about the type of community and space we wanted to create um, in the wings invisible illness support circle and really intentional about kind of trying to set some ground rules around that to make sure people feel comfortable sharing and thinking about how we acknowledge the various privileges we have in the room and don't impose our experiences onto others in the room. I feel like particularly in the kind of disability advocacy space, like they're not always safe spaces for people of color, for queer people. Like there are lots of, you know, like white disabled people are racist too. Like it's like a lots of, you know, Mm -hmm. And so we get to choose who we want to be in community with and when, like we don't owe up people our presence yeah. uh, just because we have some political um, identity. Yeah, no, that's a really wonderfully, wonderfully put e- expression of thought. I, I completely agree. So let's get onto these top three lists. Um, the first one is top three tips for someone who suspects they might have something off, might be entering the world of chronic invisible illness or disability. What would you recommend for a prospective patient, if you will. Be kind to yourself, Mm. trust Mm. yourself and take your time. I love that. (laughs) We need that on a (laughs) t-shirt. 
you need to make those t-shirts with the wang, have them at the invisible and this is support circle. <laughs> that's really lovely. Yeah. And it sounds like that's exactly what you've done and look how successful you Not are. always. Like mm-hmm. I've not always been kind to myself or gentle with myself. That's it's, it's well-earned advice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We've got to walk through the fire to find out what works and doesn't work. Don't we? Yep. So what about top three, uh, things that give you joy. So whether it's comfort activities, whether it's, um, guilty pleasures, secret indulgences, um, what are three things that you have in your life that you turn to or that give you joy? Um, I think for me, it's like my friend, it's like very cheesy, but it's like, you know, my friends, um, my family and, um, I think like just like reading and like face masks and like really kind of like boring self-care. Type. That's not boring at all. I think it's fantastic because <laughs> I think sometimes we need the reminder to like turn to those people and turn to those simple rituals that like give us time for ourselves, don't we? Mm-hmm. Well, Aditi, it has been such a lovely experience having you on the show. Where can our listeners find you and your work if they're looking for you? Sure. So um, my website is aditijaneja.me, A-D-I-T-I-J-U-N-E-J-A.me. And I'm on Twitter and Instagram with the same handle, which is at aditijaneja3, A-D-I-T-I-J-U-N-E-J-A-3. Fabulous. And we'll link to that and to all of the organizations that you mentioned as well in this interview on our episode page. Aditi, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.